And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, January 4th, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, a new year, new opportunities for protesting government contracting. Plus, guess what? It's not too late to help out the combined federal campaign. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Defense Department packed a lot of detail into that proposed rule for the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program, released just before the holiday break. Enough to fill 234 pages, the proposal tells a lot about DOD's plans for carrying out its gigantic contractor cyber certification initiative, but CMMC insiders also see a lot of lingering questions that DOD is going to have to answer in 2024 before they finalize that rule. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday reports. The Pentagon announced its plan for revising the CMMC program more than two years ago. And now with the publication of its proposed rule, DOD is hoping to finally start implementing the requirements by the end of 2024. Despite the questions and controversy at times with CMMC, Bob Metzger, the head of the Washington office of law firm Rogers Joseph O'Donnell, doesn't see any big surprises in the rulemaking released in late December. Clearly, DOD has put a huge amount of thought into it, and undoubtedly they've read some or perhaps much of the commentary that has been uh, swirling around the expected 2.0 rules for a couple of years. And yet, when you look at what they've actually done, there are no significant architectural changes. This is pretty much what we were told we were going to get. That's Bob Metzger speaking at this week's meeting of the cyber accreditation body. The Pentagon stuck with changes to split up the CMMC requirements into three different levels. DOD's rule estimates that the program will affect about 220,000 companies. But the department projects that the majority of those companies, just short of 145,000, will only be required to self-attest to meeting cybersecurity standards. DOD still estimates that about 76,000 companies handle more sensitive information that will require them to get a third-party assessment of their cybersecurity practices. And the Pentagon plans to fully institute those requirements across all solicitations by October 2026. Metzger says the rule shows DOD is not backing off its contractor cybersecurity initiative. The rule communicates that DOD is serious about the cybersecurity of the defense industrial base. They could have made life easier for small businesses. They might have truncated the requirements or extended the rollout period or increased the opt-outs or given contracting officers more latitude over a greater period of time so that it wouldn't be as demanding for so many. But in the main, uh, they did not. They kept the bar fairly high for almost everyone. The proposed rule carves out an important role for DOD's prime contractors. It requires those companies to both comply with CMMC themselves and flow down the requirements to subcontractors throughout their supply chains. Eric Crucius, a procurement attorney and partner at Holland and Knight, spoke about the prime contractor requirements at the meeting of the cyber accreditation body this week. So that reads to me is that DOD is going to hold that prime contractor responsible for their entire supply chain. And you could bet that that will waterfall all the way down the supply chain from the prime contractor and may accelerate the requirements 
that some of these large primes have for getting a CMMC certification along the way. Experts also say some important clarifications will be needed from DOD as it collects comments on the proposed rule through February 26th. For instance, which version of the National Institute of Standards and Technology Special Publication 800-171 will contractors have to meet? The proposed rule says Revision 2, but NIST is currently finalizing Revision 3 of the publication with some important updates. The proposed rule raises questions about what version of the standards contractors will have to meet and how DOD will ensure its contractor cybersecurity requirements keep up with evolving cyber threats. Jacob Horn, the chief cybersecurity evangelist for Summit 7, says DOD should clean up some of those needed clarifications. But Horn also points out that instituting major cybersecurity improvements across the vast defense industrial base will be a gradual process. But overall, I think that the best that we're ever going to be able to accomplish is going to be incremental changes over time. I think that some sort of wholesale sea change, revolutionary, continuous monitoring, elite, high-speed security revolution is just not going to happen via, via policy or politics or whatever. And if this rule specifying Rev 2 is the first increment in that long series of increments, then I think that it is a reasonable compromise in a lot of ways. Another key question is how DOD will apply the CMMC requirements to companies that provide IT services to other companies. They're called managed service providers, or MSPs. Many businesses in the defense industrial base, especially smaller ones, outsource their IT and cybersecurity needs to MSPs. Metzger, who noted he sits on the board of an MSP, says the rulemaking still needs to clarify how CMMC applies to those external service providers. We also need to be thinking about that often used word reciprocity. If an MSP is deemed to sufficiently meet uh, 171 for one client, we'd sure like it to apply for all clients who are using the same services so that we don't have each client of an MSP you know, fighting its way over the hill to get essentially the same outcome. And as Crucius points out, CMMC third-party assessment organizations, or C3PAOs, will be strained to meet the demand of certifying more than 70,000 companies in the coming years. And there's no way that the C3PO community will be able to get through them fast enough for the amount of companies that need them. So I think this only works by having an MSP community that is able to get certified and is able to be categorized in a way where DOD can look at them and say, okay, these folks are good. If this company is using this MSP, we know that 33, 80, however many of these boxes can be checked. We have to verify, but we don't have to like investigate each new system like it's a brand new system, which would make these assessments a lot slower. Another critical question is when exactly the proposed rule will be made final. It typically takes an agency at least a year to adjudicate all the comments and finalize a complex rulemaking like CMMC. But experts point out a couple reasons why DOD may be able to finalize the rule by the end of calendar year 2024. Here's Jacob Horn again. Given the election, given the fact that DOD, against their desire, was forced to wait another three years, essentially, from the time they issued their 2020 rule, I would imagine they are exceptionally highly motivated to get this wrapped up before the end of this year, which I don't know about you guys. That means, hey, maybe we'll have another Christmas surprise at the end of this year. That was so fun, right? We'll get to do it all again in 12 short months, potentially. Justin Doubleday, Federal News Network.
Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, guess what? It's not too late to help out the combined federal campaign. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Just because the Christmas season is in the rearview mirror doesn't mean you can't still give. In fact, the combined federal campaign continues until January 15th. Here with a summary of the most recent campaign, the chair of the CFC for the National Capital Region, Vince McCone. Vince, good to have you back. Tom, thank you very much. It's great to be here again. And how has the campaign gone this year? What were your goals and where are we at this point with still, you know, a week and a half to go? Well, we're in strong shape right now. Across the nation, $52 million has been raised by federal employees. Here in the D.C. area, in the DMV, we've raised over $26 million. That's half of the national total. And the last two weeks of the campaign are very important to us. They're actually $5 million weeks. Uh, by the 15th, we hope to get about $10 million more to support causes and charities in the region, around the country, and across the globe. Because federal employees will have had an average of 4 to 5% pay raise. I wonder if that'll help boost the giving in the 2024 period for the 23 campaign. Well, you know, I think uh, getting that gift from Uncle Sam means maybe we ought to give a little bit of a gift back to the community. You know, the average gift um, in the DMV from federal employees is just over $1,000 in CFC contributions, whether people give one time through payroll deduction um, or if they pledge volunteer hours. It's, it's a pretty significant amount that federal employees contribute annually. And what is the most common mode of giving? How do people normally give a payroll deduction of cash and they pick a charity or what's what's the mode here? The the most common way that federal employees give is through payroll deduction, where a little bit's taken out of every paycheck, whether it's um, biweekly or um, twice a month or, or monthly uh, pay. Um, and so folks may contribute 10, 15, 25, 100 dollars a pay period. They can pick one charity, multiple charities. Um, There's a lot of flexibility in the campaign, which is what makes it so popular. And maybe just review the roster of charities this year. Some of them come and go, but there's some eternals on that list. And it's a big list, isn't it? We have 5,000 charities right now in the campaign. And one thing all the listeners should know is that every year, all of these charity partners are reviewed by federal employees to make sure that they're legitimate uh, 501c3 nonprofits, uh, that they um, have audits if required, and that they they follow good practices. So they're they're legitimate charities in the campaign. Are there any that stand out as popular among feds? You know, I haven't really seen what the numbers look like this year in terms of the breakout. That usually comes later. But I, I would say that typically a lot of charities that focus on immediate community needs, like providing housing for the unhoused, feeding programs, and programs that work with kids, tutoring, mentoring, um, are very, very popular. And of course, they're very local. Uh, they hit to home uh, in communities uh, in the DMV or around the nation where people live. People want to make a difference right in their neighborhoods. And what kind of backup? I mean, we've reviewed this before, but there's a standing staff and a lot of volunteers on the campaign itself 
because you do have a full-time job at the Labor Department. Combined Federal Campaign is driven by federal volunteers. It always has been. I started out as a key worker when I started my career at the Department of Justice in the early 90s, and I've been involved ever since then. We have a small staff that we work with, um, and OPM has a few staff members that run the programs nationally. And a lot of what our staff does uh, is help really drive the volunteer activities, those um, volunteers that are managing campaigns and their agencies on the national level, the events and activities that we have. We've seen a great uptick in those um, coming out of the pandemic. We're we're doing um, in-office and in-building programs again, and those have been great. In fact, we're doing a volunteer project tomorrow um, at uh, a local nonprofit with uh, members of our local federal coordinating committee, our board of directors, our campaign managers. Uh, we just want to make sure that we're on uh, the right footing as we go into the last couple of weeks and, and understand the impact of what we're doing and why we do it. We are speaking with Vince McCone. He's chairman of the Combined Federal Campaign for the National Capital Region. And why do you suppose it is that in the National Capital Region, which actually doesn't have the majority of federal employees, they're actually all over the country, there's about 300,000 in the DMV, if you will, that is the leader in giving, though, compared to some of the big federal centers around the country? Well, I think that really is a hat tip to the volunteers that work on the campaign. People feel very passionately, and they'll they'll, um, have the CFC be something that they do every fall, um, as their commitment to the community and, and an understanding of public service is more than just what we do at the office. It's, it's an approach um, to how we impact our communities. So I think there's a great tradition uh, in the DMV that people are, are engaged in this every year and look forward to it. And frankly, the CFC for many agencies is used as an opportunity to step from our day-to-day work and do some fun things. So there's also some engagement activities that are a part of that. And so when you put that combination of strong volunteer commitment and engagement of employees, I think you have an opportunity for us really to stand out. And so it's a real tradition. For those hearing this and decide, I want to give now at this point and haven't yet, what do they need to do, federal employees? Very easy. Go to givecfc.org on your phone, on your work computer. Um, If you have given before, you can go back into your account, re-up your last contribution. If you're new, you can go there, set up your account, or go to one of the app stores and get the um, CFC app and start your contribution. Now, we, we like cash. Um, nonprofits like the cash infusion that comes through the CFC because there are dollars that they can use at, to address needs throughout the entire year. But through the CFC, you can also commit to volunteer. And that's something I'm very excited about. So far, federal employees in our region have pledged almost 50,000 volunteer hours, which is holding steady from last year. And I noticed uh, last month there was a Washington Post article talking about how volunteerism uh, and contributions to nonprofits have been lagging nationally. And one thing I'm very excited about is they're not lagging here in the federal sector. Uh, And that, I think, really has to do with the leadership that our volunteers um, have about the importance of volunteering, getting out into the community, giving, either through the CFC or, frankly, any way that an employee wants to. It's just important to have those commitments. And if you volunteer year-round for a place, say one of the food banks where they need sorting and boxing of food to send out to people and this kind of thing, it's a year-round need. Can the year-long volunteering count towards your CFC contribution each year? Yes. We actually um, monetize the volunteer hours as part of our contribution. So, so far, the volunteer hours that have been committed to date 
represent $1.2 million in contributions to charities locally. All right. And I'm curious, now that the government is as back to work as it's going to be, probably, with people in a few days a week, whatever, what have the trends been in the pandemic with respect to CFC levels of, of collections? And is it on the rise now that people are somewhat back to work or what's going on there? I think I would characterize it as steady. I want to look at the numbers from this year's campaign because I think those will be very telling now that the pandemic is over uh, and uh, now that we are uh, in uh, a new hybrid work environment where people are in the office more, there's some teleworking. uh, I think we need to assess what things are going to look like um, based on this year's giving. But right now we're holding firm to where we were last year, which is encouraging. The we saw a huge increase in the number of in um, office events this year and those were very exciting and, and very energizing you know look we we did a lot of the activities during the pandemic and they were fun there were ways to connect um, during tough times but there's nothing like having a cookie chill like uh, a cookie a, a chili or cookie cook-off where you're with your um, colleagues and and you can experience that together it's just not the same when you share your recipe on a zoom call All right. So 10 more days or so to go. Make sure you get out there. And if you haven't, do that give. Vince McCone is chairman of the Combined Federal Campaign for the National Capital Region. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. We encourage everyone to give happy. Help us have a strong end to the campaign. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive, and we'll have a link to the CFC for you. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, what's it really like on the planet Venus? Well, this NASA scientist actually knows. But first, a new year, new opportunity for contracting protests. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Whether Congress passes a 2024 budget or not, federal agencies will continue to engage in contracting, and that will mean continued protests by disappointed bidders. You can learn a lot from protests that have already been settled. And here with a roundup, in his opinion, the most significant protests of 2023, Haynes Boone procurement attorney Dan Ramish. Dan, good to have you back. Thanks, Tom. Good to be here. And you've got a list you put together that you think are illustrative of the big trends that people should worry about this year, 2024. Let's start with CIO SP4 protests. This is the big GWAC program from the NIH. Yes, this uh, procurement was very notable for the number of bid protests. So many protests that it set new records and broke the GAO's bid protest statistics for the year. But in some regards, it was predictable because there were so many awards, 305 to 510 IDIQ contracts, each with five years and a five-year option and a maximum value of $50 billion. So the stakes were very high, so protests were fairly predictable. And the solicitation was pretty complex that NIH set up for itself. There was a three-phase evaluation of proposals requiring offerors to submit a self-scoring sheet that assigned points for offerors' representations on experience and capabilities under various criteria identified in the solicitation. And the NIH said that it would value validate the offerors self-scoring and then allow the highest rated offerors to advance to the next phase. And proposals were originally due in August 27, 2021, but that date was postponed. There were multiple successive rounds of protests and corrective actions. 
And after amending the solicitation 16 times, the agency received proposals from 1,150 bidders. So massive, massive proposal. And I think one that illustrates some of the challenges of having a procurement of this size with this many different potential contracts, which ironically is intended to save time. But you see with amendment after amendment and protest after protest and corrective action that it draws out over time. So after the uh, offerors were identified to move on, there were challenges brought, protesters raising grounds for challenging the exclusions from moving on to the next round and the ways that their proposals were evaluated. It sounds like NIH wanted to create a marketplace with as many bidders as they could fit in, but yet you can't just let anyone in because you don't know whether everyone who would be on that marketplace is legitimate and can deliver according to what the government standards would be. So they had to be a big net, but yet still some filtration, I guess you'd say. Yeah, that's right. And part of the design was that there would be all these different small business and socioeconomic categories. There was kind of a menu in that regard. But that added some additional complexities because offerors within an individual bucket were supposed to only be evaluated against other offerors in that bucket. So that complicated the calculations even further. And so what do we learn from all of this? So GAO evaluated the protests and sustained protests on two grounds. First, that the agency didn't adequately document that it validated all the offerors' self-scored proposals the way that it said that it would. The GAO said they didn't determine that proposals were not validated, but there wasn't adequate documentation to show that the agency had done its job to validate all of the proposals. And then the second issue was establishing cut lines for different socioeconomic groups. The uh, GAO said that there were some inconsistencies and it wasn't clear whether the agency had included unvalidated scores in establishing those cutoffs for the proposals that would advance for the next round. I would say, though, the real takeaway from these successful proposals is that the agency, regardless of the size of the procurement, has to follow the rules that it sets for itself and document. That's nothing groundbreaking there. But of course, that's a much bigger challenge when you're dealing with some of these extremely massive contracts and that volume of proposals and contemplated awards. Right. So you really have to be able to scale your management and oversight of what you're doing when you have such a big number of possible parties involved. Yes. So some would even look at this and question whether this kind of self-scoring is a good method, whether agencies should go back to the drawing board and how they evaluate these massive GWACs. All right. We're speaking with Dan Ramish. He's a procurement attorney with Haynes Boone, and we're talking about the uh, most significant protests of the past year. And you mentioned two Federal Circuit decisions that clarify procedural and jurisdictional bid protest rules. These sound like a little bit more basic sticking to the knitting here. Yeah, so these are fairly technical distinctions, but they're things that procurement lawyers get excited about when you talk about the rules that the Court of Federal Claims has for hearing bid process decisions. Well, apparently the uh, contractors also get excited over them. That's right. Certainly when it's your protest on the line or your award, you care a lot about what the rules are. This has been kind of a pet project of the Federal Circuit, and there's been a lot of progress this year on procedural rules and whether they're properly considered jurisdictional rules, because jurisdictional rules get special status. When I say jurisdictional rules, I mean the rules that go to the court's authority to hear the case in the first place. And so if a rule is jurisdictional, it can be raised at any time. It can't be waived or forfeited. 
and the court or other tribunal has to even raise it if the parties don't. If it comes to their attention, there could be an issue. So uh, jurisdictional rules are kind of supercharged as compared to other procedural rules. And the Federal Circuit looked at two specific bid protest rules, the blue and gold waiver rule regarding timeliness of solicitation challenges and the statutory standing rule or interested party rule. So M.R. Pittman, the first case on the blue and gold waiver rule, the protester submitted a proposal to repair pump units at a pump station and the company had the lowest price of four bidders that responded to the solicitation, but was deemed ineligible for award because the contract was set aside for small business and the company didn't qualify as a small business under the applicable NAICS code. So M.R. Pittman brought a post-award protest at GAO alleging that the solicitation couldn't be treated as a set-aside because it left out the NAICS codes, without which it couldn't establish what the size was. GAO dismissed the protest as untimely, and Pittman refiled at the Court of Federal Claims, making the same argument. And the government filed a motion to dismiss an opposition to the contractor's motion for a temporary restraining order and preliminary injunction. And there was a hearing, and the Court of Federal Claims ruled that M.R. Pittman had waived its right to protest under blue and gold because it didn't raise the issue until after the award was made. And under blue and gold, that's the rule. You know, if you're challenging the terms of the solicitation, you have to do it before the due date for proposal submission. Right. Even though the merits might be in your favor, ultimately, if you don't go about your procedures for protest correctly, that doesn't matter. That's right. And there was a suggestion that the protester kind of exploited the rules. Of course, if they had raised the issue before the due date for proposals, and the agency could have clarified that it was a set aside and it wouldn't have been eligible in the first place. So on appeal to the federal circuit, the appellate court considered the argument and said, well, blue and gold is not actually a jurisdictional rule. The prior cases in this area have been wrong on that, but it doesn't matter because ultimately even though the dismissal was based on lack of jurisdiction, dismissal was proper based on the failure to state a claim. At the end of the day, the contractor needed to raise the issue timely, and failure to do so, even in the final resolve, doomed its, uh, dooms its proposal. And the Federal Circuit looked again at the circumstances and said it was obvious you know, it was a patent error in the solicitation. And so it was appropriate to require the challenge to be raised before proposal due date. Okay. And the second case in that category of procedural and jurisdictional bid protest rules? So the other case uh, dealt with uh, the so-called interested party rule, or referred to in the Federal Circuit's decision as statutory standing. So the requirement that the contractor has to have a substantial chance of receiving an award in order to have standing to challenge with a protest. So in this case, CICI was one of five bidders for an army contract to design and manufacture devices to encrypt and decrypt sensitive information on the battlefield. And the solicitation required the devices to use two-factor authentication. And the army assigned CICI's proposal three deficiencies relating to the two-factor authentication requirements. And CICI also disclosed in its proposal that one of its employees had been involved in a prior contract that created a document that was used in the solicitation. And the agency, the Army here, awarded to another offeror and did so on the basis that CACI hadn't had these deficiencies in its two-factor authentication, didn't raise any issue with OCI. So CACI then protests the uh, assignment of the technical deficiencies. And then the agency says, oh, by the way, you also had an organizational conflict of interest, so you're not an interested party anyway. 
And the Court of Federal Claims looked at that and said they did their own evaluation and said that there was an organizational conflict of interest, that the prior contract that CACI had had was a CETA contract, and that therefore they weren't eligible for an award, and so weren't an interested party, and they dismissed for basis of lack of jurisdiction. Right. So they came into the whole competition as a party that was not eligible for an award, ultimately. And therefore, the jurisdictional rule came in because if you can't get an award, then you can't have standing. That's right. So whether they had the technical deficiencies or not was beside the point. Although the court did also decide in the trial proceeding that the technical deficiencies assigned by the agency were valid. So fast forward to the the Federal Circuit's decision. Uh, The circuit held that statutory standing similarly was not a jurisdictional rule. And in this case, it overruled some 20 years of precedent, including its own prior cases. But the issue was then whether the technical deficiencies stood on their own. And the Federal Circuit said that they did, even though the court had erred in making a determination of the organizational conflict of interest de novo, the the fact that the technical deficiencies were properly assigned by the agency was enough to affirm the trial court's decision. So therefore... So in the final resolve, when you have some of these shifts in procedural rules, it's not clear the extent of the practical effects that the change in status will have. And the Federal Circuit, in some of its decisions, such as on claims where it's made similar moves in declaring procedural rules no longer jurisdictional, has said, in most cases, this won't really make a difference. And we have some examples where the court found other grounds to support the decisions below. The point is you got to pay attention to the big cases because things change in the way the court looks at them and in the way that agencies go about their solicitations. That's right. And in these cases, you know, the Federal Circuit has been persuaded by Supreme Court precedents. So you have to have a, a broader perspective. Uh, and in the end, it is possible that contractors will get farther into the litigation because these protests can't be kicked uh based on a motion to dismiss for lack of subject matter jurisdiction. All right. Dan Ramish is a procurement attorney with Haynes Boone. No doubt you'll have plenty of upcoming cases this year, right? No doubt. All right. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, what's it really like on the planet Venus? We'll find out from a NASA scientist who really knows and a lot of other stuff. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. My next guest is a career NASA researcher who's focused on the nearby planets and their geologic behavior. Now she's director of the Planetary Science Division of NASA's Science Mission Directorate, and she's a recipient of a Presidential Rank Award. Lori Glaze joins me now in studio. Dr. Glaze, good to have you with us. Great to be here. Thank you. And planetary geologic behavior, that's volcanoes and the movement of the surface and things happening on the planets. Tell us more about the purpose of that research. Well, a lot of what we're interested in is trying to understand how all of the planets formed and how they evolved and changed over time. And, of course, volcanism is a major process that happens on the Earth and on Mars and the Moon and Mercury and Venus, all of the terrestrial planets. And so that's really trying to understand how volcanism has shaped what those planets look like today. 
So you're basically a dermatologist of the planets. <laughs> kind of, yeah, understanding the surface of the planets. And how does that inform the missions, or is it just the pure science to understand that is the mission? So that's a part of what we're trying to understand, and we're really trying to understand the planets as a whole and the roles they've played in our solar system formation and the evolution of the solar system. So our missions from NASA, we take the next step from looking through a telescope. We actually send spacecraft to the planets to look up close, either orbiting around the planets I and mean, getting lots of images so we can understand the planets from images and other geophysical information, or sometimes we land missions like Perseverance rover that's now driving around on the surface of Mars, and that's another way that we can explore. By the way, my own ignorance, have we landed anywhere else besides the moon and Mars? <laughs> At this point, those are the major planets we've landed on, although there was a European lander that landed on a comet, and we actually have sent uh, a couple little landers, or uh, I think uh, JAXA sent a couple landers, that's Japan agency sent someone to an asteroid. But yeah, the main planets would be the moon and Mars. And speaking of asteroids, that's another area of interest for you, the mm -hmm. near-Earth objects that yeah. I guess potentially could endanger the Earth. Yeah, that's a big part of our program. We call it planetary defense. We're planetary defenders, meaning that we're on the lookout all the time looking for asteroids or comets that could eventually perhaps run into Earth and be dangerous for us here. We don't want to experience something like the mass extinction that happened, the big asteroid impact that wiped out the dinosaurs. So we're looking out for those big ones. And then just last year, we tested a mission called the Double Asteroid Redirection Test, where we actually on purpose crashed a spacecraft into an asteroid so that we could see just how well we could change its orbit. Right. And we found that even that little bit of impact, an inch in space, is yeah. millions of miles by the time the thing gets here. Exactly. If you have enough time, that little tiny change over time turns into a big difference. And for planetary defense, our goal is to make sure that when that asteroid passes over Earth's orbit, Earth is out of the way. We've already moved and it comes in behind us instead of smashing into us. Sure. And as a girl, were you the type of child who, when everyone else got Barbie dolls for Christmas, you got a telescope? <laughs> well... Actually, no, I was still into Barbie dolls, but I was always really into math and science. So I really did enjoy building sets and things like that, Legos and erector sets and things like that. I was really into that. Both of my parents were engineers. My brother ended up being an engineer, so lived in a household that was pretty conducive to that sort of thing. And when looking at the planets, I mean, we still use telescopes. How much of the research is observation and how much is calculation, if that makes sense? Well, that's a really good question. And particularly for myself, my personal background, my research area was in the kind of theoretical research. I did a lot of modeling work, meaning that I would develop a mathematical equation that could describe how a lava flow moves on the surface of Mars. And then I would use imaging data from our spacecraft to compare with my model to help us better understand how those volcanoes would have worked on Mars in the past. So it kind of all works together. Right. So on Earth, volcano flows have a certain characteristic. And then if you build in the factors of temperature, gravity, atmospheric makeup, you can then maybe extrapolate what would happen on Mars if we could watch a volcano. That is exactly right. And then we can see today lava flows on Mars that erupted millions of years ago. We can see what they look like when they finished flowing, and we can use our models to work backwards and tell us, well, what would that have looked like? You know, again, changing the gravity and the atmospheric conditions and that sort of thing. 
how would that have erupted? What would it have looked like while it was erupting? And what can that tell us about how volcanoes work on Mars? I'm getting the whiff of artificial intelligence coming into this type of work. (laughs) It could eventually. All right. We're speaking with Dr. Lori Glaze. She's director of the Planetary Science Division at NASA and a Presidential Rank Award winner. And why'd they pick you for a rank award among, I mean, you're one of a couple of hundred, so you're an elite person here. Yeah. Well, I will tell you the things that went into my nomination this go-round were that, you know, we recently went through the depths of a pandemic. And one of the things that we were able to do that I was able to help my organization during that pandemic was to make sure we got that Mars Perseverance rover launched. It launched in July of 2020. So many of us may recall that in March of 2020, we were all sent home. But that was kind of at the peak time that that mission really needed to finish all of the final integration of all the piece parts. We shipped the spacecraft to Florida to be integrated onto the rocket that was going to launch from Cape Canaveral. And that was really hard to do. We had to basically mobilize the entire agency to make sure we had safe at work practices for all of the individuals. We, you know, we put people's health first and foremost, certainly above the launch of a spacecraft. But as stewards of taxpayers' dollars, we recognize if we missed a launch date, you can only go to Mars every two years, and that's fairly expensive to to wait another. I mean, it's hundreds of millions of dollars. Hundreds of millions of dollars. You're exactly right. So we didn't want to do that. So we worked really hard to keep our personnel safe. We worked on ways to transport them across the country so that, again, they kept their health and didn't put them at risk. And uh, we were able to successfully launch that mission, as well as two others that came along a little later than that, but still had the bulk of that work going on during the pandemic. And that was a big part. There were other things as well, but that was one of the main things. So you had a challenge maybe similar to, say, the FAA, where people have to operate consoles and monitor things in close proximity to one another. Did the technology available as of 2020 enable people to do some of this remotely, as it did in a lot of industries, actually? We did move a lot of the work to be remote. A lot of the work for, you can imagine, software development were things that we were able to move those folks home and they were able to stay at home and stay safe and and complete that work in a remote environment. But a lot of our work is hands-on. When you're getting ready to launch a spacecraft, it is hands-on people in what we call a clean room. So we already have processes that we require when we assemble spacecraft that they have to be dressed in what we call a bunny suit with masks and gloves and hats and, you know, the whole thing. But we had to then work the protocols for how we made sure as they transitioned into those clean rooms that everyone was healthy and safe and not interacting with each other. And, you know, so we put a lot of extra steps in the process. Yeah, because clean room gear, say in semiconductor manufacturing or something like this, the particulates they worry about are much smaller, I think, than the microbes that (laughs) were harming people. So once they're in, they're okay. Has the robotic capability of the rover been able to take its mask off? (laughs) It definitely took its mask off. As soon as it landed on Mars, it was ready to go. And Percy's been doing a great job now since February of uh, 2021. Uh, So we're coming up almost on three years of activity on the surface of Mars, doing an amazing job. And on the research front, let's get back to that. What are your priorities of the moment? What do you Mm -hmm. hope to do next? What, What are you working on? So we got a couple big priorities. I mean, you're a director, so but you still do some research hands-on. <laughs> well, I don't actually get to do a whole lot of research myself these days, but my role I see is primarily enabling our entire planetary science community across the United States to do the research and can keep that science moving forward. So that's my main job right now. 
But I'll tell you, from our division standpoint, from NASA's standpoint, the next big things for planetary, we've got a big mission that's going to be launching next October. It's a mission to fly a spacecraft to a moon of Jupiter called Europa. Europa is really exciting. It's ice covered, but beneath the ice is a global ocean that could actually support life today. And so we're going to orbit around Jupiter and fly by Europa and understand whether or not that ocean might be habitable. We also have a really big year coming up for the moon. We've been working a lot with our human exploration side of the house. Humans, of course, we're working with Artemis that are going to send humans back to the moon. But this year we're sending several NASA payloads to the surface of the moon in a brand new program where we're using commercial capabilities. Brand new commercial companies that have never sent planetary missions before are going to be landing on the moon. And the first two of those are expected to launch in January. So we're really excited. Yes, so that the planetary and the geologic type of research that your group does, does inform what the missions are doing in terms of sending probes out there. Absolutely. It's the science really that drives the big questions. And then based on those big questions, NASA determines which missions we want to fly to answer those questions. And by the way, how big is Europa? So Europa as a moon of Jupiter is about the size of our moon, approximately. It's a pretty cool place. Um, I'll just mention that part of the big spacecraft that's going to fly, the power and propulsion unit was actually built at Applied Physics Lab just up the road here in Laurel, Maryland. And I can also just give a quick plug for folks that if you want to send your name on the spacecraft, we have a program called Message in a Bottle. We've got two million names already. People are sending their names to Europa. You too can do that. All right. And (laughs) just a final question, I guess, philosophical or scientific philosophical, but we can calculate what's going on with a lot of algorithms based on what we know of a planet. And we can observe it from a certain distance, either from Earth or from closer. But in launching a probe that would actually orbit something like Europa, you're really right there. So that the closeness of observation is really important, as well as the calculating side. Yeah, it's incredibly important to be this close. There's some things that we can do in that proximity that there's no way we can do from Earth or farther away. One of those things is we think that it's possible there could be geysers on Europa that are spewing out water that, if there were biology in that ocean, might be represented in those geysers. We can fly through those, perhaps, and sample those. We also have the ability, when we're this close, with our really sensitive instrumentation, we can tell you how deep is that ocean? How salty is that ocean? We can measure that using magnetometers and things like that to tell us how salty is it? What is the makeup of the material on the surface? And those are the kinds of things that we can only do when we're close by. And by the way, how long does it take to get to Europa? Well, that's a good question. It kind of depends on what rocket you have and what route you take. So our mission, Europa Clipper, is going to launch in October of 2024. It's going to arrive at Jupiter in 2030. On the way, it's going to fly by Mars and get a gravity assist to kind of give it you know, an oomph. It actually flies by Earth and then Mars, and then it gets these two little double bumps to throw it out to uh, Jupiter. Uh, I'll just tell you, just for reference, the European Space Agency also has a mission going to the Jupiter moons, uh, different moons, and they launched last year. They get there later because on a different rocket and different trajectory. So, yeah, it takes about six years. <laughs> and then you got to get the stuff back. 
Well, we get the data back. We don't bring it back here to Earth. We're going to actually collect the data with the spacecraft, and then we send the information back via radio signals, and then we'll receive the data here through our deep space network antennas. But we don't actually bring the spacecraft back. That's a pretty rare occurrence when we actually bring the (laughs) spacecraft back. So the data comes back the speed of light. It does come back speed of light. And we like that. Dr. Lori Glaze is director of the Planetary Science Division at NASA and a presidential rank award winner this year. Thanks so much for joining me. It's my pleasure. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Speaking of protests, the General Services Administration got out from under one protest of a major acquisition initiative, only to be sucked right back into a protest of another big program. Thus, the always entertaining world of federal procurement, a step forward, a step back. In his reporter's notebook, Federal News Network's Jason Miller writes about the latest trials and tribulations, another installment of As the GSA's Acquisition World Turns. Jason joins me now with the latest. And Jason, let's start with what they got out from under in terms of protests. This is the Oasis Plus protest they got out from under. Uh, Boston Consulting Group filed this back in August. GAO decided shortly after Thanksgiving denying BCG's complaints. And this was time a pre-award protest. I want to be clear on that. GSA continues to evaluate proposals under Oasis Plus, but this was a pre-award protest. What BCG basically protested was several valuation factors in the solicitation, including the requirement for offers to disclose their breakdowns over their proposed labor rates. This is to ensure, according to GSA, price reasonableness for the services any one company is offering. BCG said this violated the FAR and the Federal Acquisition Streamlining Act, or FASA, and especially when we talk about commercial items. GAO denied the protest, saying the agency reasonably determined that assessing the individual cost drivers associated with each offer's unique labor rates was acceptable for making a reliable and accurate cost-price reasonableness determination. Now, GAO also found that the solicitation is consistent with FASA as its stated preference of the acquisition of commercial items. It said GSA took the right action, or at least action, to accommodate commercial item contracting, encourage participation, and pointed out that no other vendor protested, and BCG actually did bid on Oasis Plus in the end. So they kind of shot themselves in the foot, if you will. And this was an important decision by GAO. I think I had heard from a lot of procurement experts that they were watching this because if GAO had found for BCG, right, that would have really thrown a big ratchet into a lot of what agencies doing around commercial items, not just GSA, but across the government. So in, in many ways, this was a, a we'll call it a landmark win, but a big win for GSA. All right. And then there is the new protest now that popped up in its face there like zombies. One step forward with Oasis Plus, one step back with something called the Commercial Platforms Initiatives, or CPI. This protest comes from EPS, National Diversity Veteran Small Business, over their disqualification from competition for this next generation of the Commercial Platforms Initiative. Tom, just to go back real quick, about five, six years ago, GSA awarded three contracts to Amazon, Fisher Scientific, and Overstock to test out this concept that Congress really pushed them into. So they're into phase two. They've been looking at uh, the solicitations and bids over the last uh, couple months, and uh, EPS NDVSB was disqualified. And I talked with David Ciroli, the CEO of the company, and he says GSA's decision to disqualify EPS NDVSB is perplexing. He says GSA disqualified them around three deficiencies. They submitted a bid. They went through a live demonstration. They went back and forth over email questions and still couldn't come to resolve these three deficiencies. They say GSA told them they didn't provide the ability to have a minimum order quantity. They didn't demonstrate a data dashboard and didn't have a marketplace unique for government 
use. Now, all three of those, Siroli says, is untrue because they are actually providing those exact services and their e-procurement platform to the Army, the Air Force, and two Navy commands, and they say they meet and exceed those solicitation requirements. They filed the protest back in December 21st. GAO has until April 1st to decide. So I think there's something, obviously, we'll be watching over the next uh, couple months. And this commercial platforms initiative has attracted other protests before, hasn't it? It did. Earlier this uh, summer, the GSA had to take corrective action after the National Institutes for the Blind filed a pre-solicitation protest over the mandatory and sourcing requirements for products provided under the Ability One program. Basically, GSA did not keep uh, that mandatory sourcing requirements in the solicitation or did not spell it out correctly enough. And I think uh, National Institutes for Blind was quite worried that these companies, whether it's Amazon or Fisher Scientific or Overstock or any of the new winners, would not follow the rules under the Ability One program. So I think that that first protest, now the second protest by EPS and DVSB, and for other reasons, now the awards under the platform for the you know, next generation platform are delayed. They're going to take longer than expected. GSA had hoped to make the award of the second version of these platforms, I think, before the end of 2023 in the calendar year, but instead now had to extend their current contracts, again, Amazon, Fisher Scientific, and Overstock, through March. And, and, Tom, this is interesting because GAO found earlier this year in July that agencies spent about $40 million through the Commercial Platforms Initiative in 2022. It's definitely gaining popularity. More agencies are using the platforms. And I think there's more interest in providing this type of service to the government. I've heard, again, along with EPS and DVSB, uh, Granger, Amazon, a company called BIT, and possibly, again, we'll stress possibly here, Costco and Walmart may have all bid on this uh, procurement. So it'd be interesting to see how many bidders they did receive and obviously who gets awards uh, later this year. Yeah, if they need Swiffers to clean those floors when people come back, they'll have a place to get them. And there's no protest yet on the Ascend blanket purchase requirement for cloud services, but you think that could be happening, and this is just out in December. Right. This is a pre-solicitation or a draft performance statement of work specifically around what they call Pool 1. And Pool 1 is for infrastructure and platform as a service. They also offer some details for Pools 2 and 3, Pool 2 around software as a service, and Pool 3 around cloud IT professional services. Tom, Ascend has been two years, almost two years in the making. GSA released this. If you remember Sonny Hashmi, the former FAS commissioner, who, by the way, has a new job now at a company called Uncork. Yes, indeed. He, he talked to us about this back at ELC in May of 2022. So it's been in process for quite a while. And a lot of agencies, a lot, a lot of vendors are very excited about this because it's an easier way to buy cloud services. So will it be protested? Who and I, you know, Tom, you and I don't know, but there's a lot of excitement around it, which is why I'm bringing this up because I've talked to some in industry already who say, okay, yeah, do we really need another BPA? And, and Sonny Hashmi during his time at GSA was very clear to say, we're not doing this just to do it. We have to make sure there's a need. At the same time, will vendors bid on this? Because under a BPA, Tom, rules are that you have to show a need for why to establish a BPA on top of the schedules. The draft performance work statement so far does not show any agencies who are saying committing to using this BPA. And in fact, what I've talked to uh, industry in the, over, over the course of the last couple of weeks, they've told me this follows a track record of GSA not following the FAR rules to ensure that there is a guarantee or at least a interest of, based on agencies' use of the BPAs. And we've seen other, what someone termed the BPA flops over the years. The one big one that I remember is the email as a service BPA flop. I'm sure there's been plenty of others that folks can, can think about. So again, something to watch maybe or 
protestable, maybe not, but uh, Ascend, a very popular contract. And again, Tom, this is why it's a soap opera. We keep learning more. We, there's always plenty of news to report. All right. Well, those billions have to find somewhere to go, so maybe come into the first pool. The water's great. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Always my pleasure. And check out his notebook at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 